All right. Well, it's been a few Sundays. We're in the book of Jude, uh, but it's been a few Sundays since we've been in the book of Jude. We took a little bit of a hiatus, had a guest uh, preacher last week and uh, or the week before and preached about uh, what the Bible says about being a member of a church last week. Uh, and so if you'll allow me this morning, I want to kind of briefly recap all of Jude up until the point where we are, just to sort of get our heads back into what's going on in the book of Jude. Um, it's a very small epistle, but we've managed to be in it for about 15 weeks now. Um, the very first week, we covered those crucial first two verses in Jude, where Jude aimed to couch the letter that was certain to be a bit stressful for us between two sections that really assured believers of escaping the battle victoriously. Jude began his letter with the statement to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude wanted to make sure that believers understand that they belong to Christ and that they're under the king's divine protection as they battle and contend for the faith. God calls the believer to himself. And if you remember, we talked about how that's the effectual call to salvation that's irresistible. We understand that those who God calls, He loves, and those who He loves, He keeps. And so as Jude gets ready to really unleash what is a letter of warning that may tempt some believers to shudder for fear of losing themselves to the battle, Jude says, no, I want you to know going in that you're called by God, you're beloved of God, and subsequently kept by God. This greeting is very important because as we've seen the battle that he takes us through is a tough one. And I think we've all experienced those kind of battles in our life where just fighting the spiritual battles over and over can tend to draw us to despair. Week after week we've been in Jude and he's been warning us of apostasy, of false teachings, and that's what we've been hearing over and over and over and over again. And so he starts with this comfort, an assurance that we will persevere to the end. It can be tiring, and Jude knows that. It may seem overwhelming. It's, an, it's a battle that we're engaged in for a lifetime, and it's easy to get discouraged. But Jude takes the time at the beginning and then again at the end to ensure that believers know that God protects His own. He guards them and He keeps them so that we can enter into the battle ready and with confidence in Christ. So, as Jude moves from the greeting to the warning part of the letter, which we've been in the majority of the time, we've journeyed along with him, we've kept this assurance in mind, at least I hope that you have, as we have learned that we have to be on guard constantly from false doctrines and those who teach those false doctrines. From the greeting, Jude goes on then to describe the character of pseudo-Christians of Uh, which he says are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He warns of the destruction that awaits these apostates who creep into the church and bring false teachings. He gives us some examples of those who apostatized in the past. After that, Jude gives some keen insights into the habit and character of apostates that have come into the church by comparing them to some famous examples in church history. Jude gives the example of the judgment that God's own people fell under after they came out of Egypt. If you remember, God 
led his people out of Egypt with a miraculous display of power over and over again. The people of Egypt, when they were freed, they witnessed the plagues of Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea after God parted the waters through Moses. They received daily manna in the wilderness. They had a cloud that led them by day and by fire at night. They even heard the audible voice of God. They received the Ten Commandments and miracle after miracle, God lavished His loving kindness to His people. And yet, in the end, they turned away from God. He says that they disobeyed Him ten different times. And they refused to enter into the promised land. And Jude points to this as an example of what happens to those who turn from the truth of God. Only two from that whole generation survived. In Jude verse 5, he says that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And so he's reminding this of the penalty of false believers, those who leave the faith. If that wasn't enough to convince any false teacher of God's judgment, Jude gives a second example. In verse 6, he talks about the apostatizing of the angels and how they abandoned their proper station, to which Jude tells us God has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And so not only is there judgment for God's own people at the time if they left the faith, but there's also judgment for angels who apostatized. And if that wasn't enough, then we have the third example, which is probably the most well-known to our days, is Sodom and Gomorrah. To which Jude says they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And that Sodom and Gomorrah was an example of undergoing condemnation of eternal punishment. And so Jude is warning us over and over and over again the penalty for walking away from Christ. For denying Christ for coming against the things of God. He's giving some warning for those who would come into the church. They say the things Christians say. They do the things Christians do. But they're really in the faith for their own advantage. They really have no relationship with God. And so this is the penalty that he's pointing to, eternal punishment. Now Jude's audience we talked about would have known all of these examples very well. We took three different Sundays and dove into the Old Testament and Depth, just to remind us of those things. And in reality, his reminding the church in that day of these things would have caused a great holy fear. And what we mean by that is a reverence for God, a reminding that although God is a gracious and loving and long-suffering God, that there still is a very real penalty for not having faith and trusting in God. There's a penalty that false teachers will endure and it's an eternal penalty and we should it should have that same effect on us today and then we come to verse 8 where we go back to the character of false teachers within the church jude says this yet in the same way these men these men being those who have crept in unnoticed right false christians these men also by dreaming defile the flesh they reject authority and they revile angelic majesties we talked about what All of that meant. We won't go into great detail here. But these are some common characteristics in false teachers. We see it today. They often defile the flesh. 
Sexual perversity runs rampant amongst false teachers. We've all seen that over and over again play out in our own day and age. But not only do they defile the flesh, it says they reject biblical authority and angelic majesties. They have no reverence for the holy things of God, in other words. In verse 10, moving along, Jude says that these men revile the things which they do not understand and things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. And then in verse 11, Jude decries woe to them. Now remember, the whole reason Jude is giving us these examples, warning us over and over, the reason he's pointing out the character and subsequent punishment is so that we would contend for the faith. That we would beware of those who would come into the church and attempt to lead us astray by false doctrines. He's warning us to contend for the faith Way back in verse 3. Verse 3 is the central theme for the entire book of Jude. It's a call to fight for the faith. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words... He wanted to just talk about the glorious things of Christ. He wanted to talk about those things which were common to the Christian faith, but there was something more pressing. There was something that the Holy Spirit such put on his heart that he had to change his intention. And instead of writing about those things which are common, which are lovely, which are easy to hear about the faith, he instead writes us a letter telling us to contend for the faith, warning us not to be led astray by false teachers. And so in verse 11, we come to the woe to them. Woe to these false teachers. And then Jude proceeds to again give us three more examples of past apostates. Jude is a little bit like a broken record, and there's a reason for that. It's really important. He wants us to get the point. He says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. That is, these false teachers that have come into the church. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have given themselves up to the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. We spent three weeks in detail talking about Cain and talking about Balaam and talking about Korah. We saw how Cain was the very first apostate. He left the path of righteousness by effectively creating his own form of worship. God wanted a sacrifice. They assuredly knew what God's expectations were, and Cain brought something different than what was expected. He made up his own form of worship. This is the tendency of those who promote false doctrine. So Judas pointing to Cain to remind us. False teachers often get a secret word from God that you can't find in Scripture anywhere. Or they just simply, maybe like Cain, feel like church should be done this way or that way. But it's never God's way. They stray from what God wants, as is given to us in Scripture. They worship in their own way. They're religious, but they're not obedient. Cain didn't fail to bring a sacrifice. He, He brought a sacrifice. And so he's comparing this to people who 
creep into the church. They come, they sing the songs, they say the name of Jesus, they talk about the Bible, they have the language. They're religious, but they're not obedient. Cain didn't fail to bring a sacrifice. He just refused to bring the sacrifice God desired. After Cain, Jude says about these men who have crept in, he says, giving us a second example, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. I'm sure we can all think of five or six examples right now of ministries that are clearly all about money. This was Balaam's lot. Balaam was known as a prophet for hire. So we talked about how Balak, the king at the time, sought out Balaam for a handsome fee, and Balaam did everything he could to get paid. Three separate times, Balaam built altars. He sacrificed bulls and rams to see if God would allow him to curse Israel. And in the end, Balaam was never allowed to curse God's people. And so since he couldn't curse God's people, what did he do? He used his influence to ruin God's people through moral corruption. If he couldn't curse God's people, he would get them to engage in sin that would cause the consequence that was equal to judgment. God's people weren't allowed to mix with pagans in that time. And so in Numbers chapter 31, we see that Moses specifically identifies Balaam as the primary source of their falling. So Balaam, while he couldn't curse the people, he led God's people into idolatry, into immorality, and into forbidden marriages with the Moabites and the Midianites. And so Balaam's apostasy attacked God's holiness. It led others into sin, and it threatened the very existence of God's people. And this is what false teachers bring in the church today still. I've spent a great deal of time on the African continent, and I can tell you that false teachers look exactly the same as they always have. They're self-serving rather than self being self-sacrificial. Money is almost always involved in power, and there's almost always immorality in the mix somewhere. They abuse the people and lead them into sin. The Balaam was greedy. Like a lot of false Christians, he was in it for the money, and he used his influence to cause others to join in his sin. Remember, Jude says in verse 4, is that the pretenders of the faith turn the grace of God into licentiousness. License to sin, in other words. And so Balaam did that. He led God's people into sexual sin by marrying outside of the parameters God gave them. So Jude reminds us of Cain, and then he reminds us of Balaam, and he's saying these are examples of what false teachers do. Look out, beware. And then he gives us the last example. He says they perish in the rebellion of Korah. Well, if you'll remember, Korah is a picture of one who was given to jealousy and envy and rebelliousness. What does it mean to be like Korah? Well, to be like Korah is to refuse the authority that is put in place by God. Korah is a picture of those who covet things that do not belong to them. Korah is a picture of those who stir up strife within the church out of a desire for prominence and power. Remember, Korah wasn't an ordinary Israelite. He wasn't just your typical Jew. Already he was elevated in stature. He was a Levite. He was one of the chosen of the chosen. He already had status. 
God had already set him apart to serve unlike the rest of Israel, but he wasn't satisfied. He wanted more. He wanted to be the priest rather than Aaron, who was chosen, if you'll remember, by God. He wasn't happy about that. And so what did he do? Korah raised up others in the congregation to groan against not Moses, but God. And Moses as well. And the result was his demise. God caused the ground to open up. Right? And he, along with his followers, were taken alive. And then all of those in the congregation of Israel who secretly supported his rebellion were killed by a plague until Aaron intervened and begged on their behalf for mercy. Apostates have had the same characteristics since the beginning, and Jude has been telling us this over and over and over again by example and example and example. They defile the flesh. They revile the holy things of God. They treat God casually. They treat the Lord's Day casually rather than a holy congregation meeting before a good and lovely God it's treated not much differently than a backyard barbecue. False teachers revile the holy things of God. Nothing is truly sacred to them. And then they reject the authority of God's Word. Sometimes it's blatantly obvious. We've given some of those examples. But other times, it's very subtle. And so Jude is beckoning us to be a discerning people. But then Jude moves from giving us examples of past apostates and He goes even further to make sure we don't miss the point. He parallels false teachers with natural phenomenon. With five, I think it was, in Jude 12 and 13, he says this, These are the men, these being those who have come into the church secretly, right? These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit doubly dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever he doesn't really hold back with a lot of pretty and flowery language when he's talking about apostates because they cause a very real threat to true believers so we spoke about how jude compares these false christians these apostates, those who have secretly crept into these five natural phenomena. He says they're clouds without water. In other words, they promise something grand, but they never deliver. They're just a disappointment. At first, they appear to be what brings life, but there's no real life in them. They're clouds without water. He says they're useless as trees that bear no fruit. If you're a farmer and you grow apples, and your apple trees don't grow apples, they're really not any good, are they? And so he's comparing this to these false teachers. And then he goes on to say that there are wild waves casting up foam, and if you remember, we talked about what makes that nice, pretty beach foam. It's really disgusting, right? It's all kind of vile contaminants and filth, And the more contaminants that you get in sea foam, the more foam you get. And this is what he's comparing false teachers to. Jude ends by 
comparing these false teachers, these fake Christians to shooting stars. In other words, they have a momentary bright flash, but then they fade into nothingness. There's no lasting fruit. They're just wanderers. You never know where they're coming from or where they're going. Nothing becomes of them. They're just a flashy spectacle and have no real use. And for all of these, again, Jude says that the black darkness has been reserved for them. That is to say that hell is the place that they will spend all of eternity. So Jude consistently speaks of the threat of false believers, not from outside of the church, but from in the church. And he uses several illustrations of both apostates in the past as well as nature, and he does that over and over because he wants to be certain that believers have a sense of caution against false teachers. And while we'd like to just think that everyone in the church is clearly for God, it just certainly isn't true. And so we're meant to be a discerning people, and Jude wants to make sure that those who are true believers exercise this discernment. Lastly, Jude reaches all the way back to antiquity, the earliest known prophecy to ever have been recorded by man, the prophecy of Enoch. We found that in verses 14 and 15, and this gets us close to our verse this morning. It says, It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. And remember, this is talking about the coming of Christ. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. There's a big emphasis there on ungodly. And all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a lot of contending. It's a lot of fighting. It's a lot of watch out for what's false and what's fake and beware and beware and beware. And now we come to our passage for this this morning and we find that Jude's tone shifts a little. He turns from the dire warnings of apostates to a believing audience. He moves from warning after warning and visual comparisons of the subsequent destruction to a tone of comfort and encouragement. Verse 16, he says, These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So he's still speaking of those who have crept in. His focus is on the apostate, the fake Christian, the false teachers, the one who comes into the body of Christ secretly for the sake of gaining an advantage. And then we come to our passage, but you, beloved, but you, beloved. So we're in Jude seventeen nineteen. If you want to put your finger there, we'll read that. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last days there will be mockers, followers after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved. There certainly are some similarities in our passage this morning compared to verses 5 to 16, but the tone is very different now. 
We go from an intense warning and focus on those who are the defectors of the faith to now an encouraging imperative aimed at the faithful. Our passage is sort of in the likeness of the opening of Jude where he brings comfort to the believer as he opens the letter with the solace that comes from believing in Christ. This consolation comes only by knowing that we are the call, that we are beloved of God, and that we are kept. And so he returns to a tone of comfort and exhortation after a very long letter and for us about 12 weeks of battling to contend, Jude begins to bring some encouragement so that we're not discouraged in our fight for the faith. The whole point of the book of Jude so far is to exhort the people of God to be discerning people. And he spent line after line giving examples of apostates and the importance of staying true to the teaching, specifically as handed down by the apostles. And the reason is because Jew was afraid, obviously, that there wouldn't be discernment needed, the discernment needed in the body of Christ to overcome the false teachers. And so he wrote this little epistle urging us to contend and warning us against those who we must contend. Well, fast forward into our day and age, things haven't changed very much, have they? church really isn't any different. We still need the book of Jude. We still have false teachers all over the world today. The largest church in America is led by a false teacher. That shouldn't surprise us. It seems that in today's society, only a handful of months go by before another so-called famous Christian announces that he's defected from the faith in the last few weeks, what we've seen three or four popular Christians from bands that have said they're no longer Christian. Some of them have no longer been Christian for years and years. They've just been playing the part. So the state of the church today is, I think, lacks the very discernment in which Jude calls us to. And so it's a good reminder. I think when we talk about the modern day church, there's probably no better preacher, I think, with his finger on the pulse of modern-day Christianity than John MacArthur. And I want to share something that comes from one of his writings. He gives six reasons for a lack of discernment in the modern church. I think they're very relevant because Jude, in some way or another, speaks to all of these issues. We're just going to read through them quickly, and you can ponder them later. Number one, he says, "...the modern church tends to minimize the importance of doctrine." Well, doctrine is the very thing that Jude is telling us to contend for, right? Remember, doctrine is just very simply a belief. Jude says, contend for the beliefs as they were handed down by the apostles. And yet our modern church tends to minimize the importance of the very thing Jude says to contend for. Number two, he says that the church has become less objective in its outlook, sacrificing unconditional truth for moral relativism and postmodern subjectivity. Well, I think we understand that, right? When feelings become more important than facts, when God's truth is only God's truth until we don't want to live it anymore, and then we find excuses and reasons not to obey it. Number three says the church's contemporary evangelistic strategy has abandoned its commitment to the power of Scripture 
and have become preoccupied with its image. Man, we just saw this in the Southern Baptist Convention a few weeks ago while I was there. They made the statement, the world is watching. And what they were communicating is that doctrine isn't so as so important as our image, and so we just don't want to do anything that anyone in the world may not like. And yet we're reminded that Jesus said, the world hated me, they'll hate you too. Number four, he says, the church's lack of discernment stems from a failure to properly study and interpret the scriptures. I mean, this should go without saying, but if you don't read your Bible, if we don't study our Bible, then you can't possibly know the God of the Bible, right? You can't defend a faith that you don't know very well. You can't love a Christ that you don't know very well. Number five, he says, the church in general has abandoned church discipline. In other words, we let abuses of all sorts go on in the church without ever addressing them. We just simply turn a blind eye to those things because we don't want to offend anyone. Number six, the rampant void of spiritual maturity within the church. I think America, Western Christianity, has produced a lot of baby Christians who... As Vodi Bakum says, and I'll paraphrase, basically produces Christians who are very excited about a Jesus that they don't know very well. We have a very immature church. And so if we were to take the book of Jude seriously, we'll develop the level of discernment needed to contend for the faith. These very things Jude has dealt with over and over again in the text. Now, I mentioned earlier that the tone changes now as we enter into the last part of Jude's letter. We're only a couple weeks from being done with Jude. Now Jude is ending the letter much like he began it. He wants us to be comforted. But you, beloved, except this time we come to an imperative. Well, what's an imperative? An imperative is a command. It's in fact the very first imperative used in the book of Jude. And it's the command to remember. And we have to ask the question, well, Jude, what is it that we're to remember? He says, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus. In other words, remember that what is happening now, the increase of false teachers, the infiltration of those who are doing the work of the devil, the impact of teachers leading people astray, remember that this was all foretold. In other words, it shouldn't catch us off guard when we hear of famous Christians who defect. We can certainly grieve that, but it shouldn't catch us off guard. It shouldn't dishearten us when we find out that the country's largest church is filled with heresy from the pulpit. It should certainly grieve us, but it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't cause us to stumble when we find that one of the country's most well-known apologists lived a life of utter depravity and debauchery after he passed away that was brought to light. We should grieve, but it shouldn't cause us to stumble because Jude says, remember what was foretold by the apostles. It was all predicted. And so Jude says, in an attempt to encourage us, remember Remember that we were told that these very things would happen in the last days. Remember that you were given advance warning so you wouldn't be caught off guard. 
so that you wouldn't be derailed in the faith, so that you wouldn't give up. Remember, we were given the advanced copy so that you wouldn't be disheartened by what is to come. And as we remember, what we remember is that this is the sovereign God of the universe who gave us this knowledge. And that should cause us to trust him all the more. He knows the beginning from the end. And lest anyone think that things are getting out of control, we can point back to all the times God has told us these very things would happen through the writing of the apostles. And this is what Jude is saying to remember. He's saying that this isn't new. You've been warned. You've been told. But you've forgotten. So remember. Enoch was the very first one to warn us. Remember, we only come to that in Jude, but this would have been an oral prophecy known to his readers. Right? When he recounts that, he recounts it as assuming his audience knew. Right? And I'll read that again. The very first prophecy, Behold, the Lord comes with many of his thousands and holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, etc. And so we know that there will be an increase of the ungodly. But what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus, God incarnate, fully man, fully God, was the very first one to warn us in the New Testament. In Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus says what? Beware of the false prophets. This is Jesus speaking. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, they don't come walking in the door with a big red flag saying that they're false teachers, right? They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, Jesus goes on to say, just a few verses later, that on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Listen to this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness these are people who claim the name of jesus they went beyond that they served in the church in the name of jesus they did works in the name of jesus and then the last day here is jesus himself saying many will come to me saying did we not do all these things in your name They didn't leave the faith. He says, I never knew you. And so we understand there will be many in the church who are false. And Jude is warning us. But he's pointing us to all these prophecies so that we can take heart and be encouraged rather than being discouraged. And so not only from the Old Testament, but from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we can see that there will be many apostates in the church we can go from there to Matthew 24:11. You can write these down and go back later if you'd like. Matthew 24:11, the signs of the return of Christ and we're told this that and many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. Many false prophets and mislead many people. In the apostle Paul's letter to the Christians at Colossae, he says in verse 18 of chapter 2 in Colossians, "Take care that no one is defrauding you." 
of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And so Paul's already seeing this and warning the body of Christ. So Jude says, remember, remember that these things were told you. Take heart. Don't be discouraged. In the book of Acts, Acts 20, 25 through 31, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but let me read it to you. The apostle writes this, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all people, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purposes of God. And here we go. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Not just yourselves, but for the rest of the body of Christ, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves... Men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So the Apostle Paul knew that after his departure, wicked men would come not from without the church again, but from within the church. He calls them ravenous wolves. And so we should not be surprised when we see these men rising up in the church. And Jude says, remember, you've been told. Again, in 1 Timothy, the apostle tells Timothy, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, who forbid marriage and advocate, abstaining from foods which God had created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So we have it in the Old Testament. We have Jesus telling us. We have the apostle in the book of Acts. We have the apostle Paul and Timothy. We also go to the apostle John in 1 John 4.1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Well, why should we do that, John? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And of course, 1 Peter, which is a parallel to the Jude writing, tells us that in the last day there will be mockers of God following after their ungodly lusts. So all of this, Jude says, remember... The battle is hard. You can get discouraged. We've got to be on guard and fighting, 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 contending for the faith. Faith can be weary. But remember, we've been told. We've been prepared. If I could rephrase Jude here, I might say it this way. Church, take heart. Because all of this apostasy was foretold. There's nothing new here. There's nothing unexpected. There's nothing we should be surprised at. Only that which God has foretold and warned us would happen. And so we can take heart and not grow weary in the battle. I mean, what a God. Really, aren't you 
glad that we serve a God that knows all of these things ahead of time? I mean, aren't you glad that we serve a God that tells us about these things ahead of time? He doesn't just leave us to wonder. He's given us His Word to prepare us. This is why when Jude says remember, it should bring us some comfort. It comforts us to get to this passage after all of the previous verses that call us to battle, after all these intense warnings, because now Jude says, don't worry, this is all under control. God saw it from the beginning, and he prepared us by telling us through his apostles. This remembering should keep us from despair. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you've kept up with things in the last two years, well, I know most of you, it can be intense and it can cause you, I, I don't know, am I the only one that's just like, I, you know, I don't want any social media, I don't want any more TV, I just want to lock myself in the house and just not know what is going on in the world. It's so bizarre. It can be overwhelming and Jude is saying, remember, we were prepared for these times. I know we all get weary when the lawlessness of the world grows, and we've seen that increase over the last couple years. Throw in dealing with messy people in the church, because guess what? We're all messy. We're all broken people. We're all imperfect people serving a perfect Lord. And then on top of all of that, Jude comes and says, false teacher, false teacher, false teacher, beware, beware, beware. It can be exasperating. In fact, maybe we can even find ourselves like Elijah. Do you remember what Elijah's mentality was in 1 Kings 19.14? It's where he cries out to the Lord and he says, Lord, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The God of armies for the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. His whole... Countries falling apart. That kind of sounds familiar. And he cries out and says, I alone am left. Well, that's a little presumptuous. And they've sought to take my life. He's running for his life. He thinks he's the only one that serves God left. He's despairing. Maybe we feel like crying out sometimes, God, it just doesn't look like you're winning. The country's falling apart. Politicians are corrupt on both sides. The church looks like it's just laid down in a lot of ways. What's going on? I feel alone. The battle is hard. And yet to Elijah, God said, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. 7,000. He thought he was the only one. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God says, Elijah, you're not alone. Don't despair. Take courage. That was an answer to his prayer. We've been foretold. And so Jude says, remember, remember that this battle was prophesied. Remember that you were already warned. Remember that we knew this was coming. And so you can take courage. So as we get to the part of the text where we're remembering all that God has prepared us for. Not just for the crazy world we now live in, but as things decline... We ought not to be surprised. 
We know that things will gradually deteriorate. We're told that in Scripture, right? And as we see these things that are in Scripture fulfilled and we witness what God has told us come to pass, we should be encouraged in knowing that He's prepared us, that He's not led us astray, that He's told us beforehand. He's not left us unprepared. And more importantly, because He's told us, He's demonstrating His sovereignty in which we ought to find our greatest comfort. None of this has caught God off guard. The last two years of what's happened in America and around the world didn't catch God by surprise. He's still in control. It doesn't mean we understand everything that's going on, but we do understand that He's not unaware and that He's not lost His sovereignty. But the question arises now that we've seen that we're supposed to be encouraged, well, what's next? Okay, you feel encouraged, but what do you do with that? Or at least Jude hopes you feel encouraged. That was the point he was trying to make. So God's told us what to expect. We We know that we need to be a discerning people. We realize that false teachers are all around, and we understand that God will cause us to persevere. That's good news, right? For those who truly believe, God will get you to the end. That is a promise. But there's a battle in the midst of that. And so what do we do as believers when Jude tells us to contend and basically be encouraged in that? How do we go about living in the encouragement that we've received? Well, I want to suggest a few things this morning that you can do and that you ought to do that will lead you to be discerning people. It will help you grow in maturity in the faith. It will help you contend and overcome. And it will enable us to contend faithfully for the faith, just as Jude has been challenging us to do. I generally prefer implication and let you come to your own application. But if you'll excuse me for one Sunday, I'll give you some application. I want to give you just six quick things. Five quick. Yeah, six quick things as we wrap up this morning. Number one, become serious about learning doctrine. We just say, again, doctrine is just what you believe. Everybody has doctrine. This whole idea about check your brains at the door, we just have the Holy Spirit, is totally foreign to Scripture. Everybody has doctrine. It's just whether it's sound or it's not sound. Whether it's good or it's bad. Whether it's of God or it's of the world. Become serious about learning sound doctrine. This is the very thing Jude tells us to contend for. The doctrine that was handed down by the apostles. Right? If you don't know where to start, I'd recommend starting in your Bible. Start a Bible reading program. Seriously, start a Bible reading program. There are a ton of really good ones out there. If you aren't accustomed to reading your Bible every day, start with five minutes. Just real practical. We've got a table full of really good books back there. If you don't have them, pick one up, take it home, and but make sure you read it. Make sure you spend more time in your Bible than you do other books, but read good books. Because one thing is certain, if you aren't reading your Bible on your own, then you're not going to know. You can't know the difference between what's true and what's not true. If you don't know your Bible, you can have feelings about that, but your feelings don't matter. 
Feelings can lead us astray. We need to know what's true according to God's word. And the only way we know that is if we're in God's word. Number two, value God's truth over your feelings. My feelings often lead me astray. God's given us our feelings. I'm not saying they're bad things, but they shouldn't be the things that lead us and determine what's right and wrong. And you can only know that truth again by reading your Bible and submitting to the truth of God over what we feel. If any of you have ever sinned, and I don't know, but I have, I, I normally feel good about it at the moment, right? But my feelings are wrong in that regard. A big problem in the church today is that truth is, seems to be an ever-moving target for many Christians. The Bible, while it has some difficulty in interpretation, generally the Bible is straightforward. It's not a book of a bunch of gray area. It's just not. God's truths are black and white. And when we prefer our feelings or the feelings of other or allow worldly circumstances to dictate what we believe, we start to blur the lines of truth and error. And when we drift, we only drift in one direction, and that's away from truth. So we need to be in our Bible. Number three, trust the sufficiency of Scripture. This is important. We're told in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Listen to this part. So that the man of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. So there are two options. Either we believe that God's Word is enough for us or we don't. There's no in-between. It either is or it isn't. Too many in the church today say that they believe in the power of God's word, but then they go to the world to fix all their problems. And they wonder why they never really get fixed. It's this pragmatic methodology that many in the church have adopted that basically says God's word is not enough. We just can't have it both ways. Number four, develop a habit of prayer. You know, there, was, uh, there is a famous preacher who is now deceased who used to say, if you want to find out how popular a church is, you can come Sunday morning. If you want to find out how popular the pastor is, you can come Sunday night. And if you want to find out how popular God is, come to the prayer meeting. And God always loses. Develop a habit of prayer. Every Christian needs to know how to pray, both in private and in public. Private prayer develops a dependency and love for God. Public prayer strengthens and serves the body of Christ by allowing others to approach the throne of God together with you in agreement. Every believer has to learn how to do these things. They aren't difficult, but you do have to cultivate a prayer life. And as a believer, you should already desire to pray. Sometimes we just don't know how to do it. That's a legitimate concern. We need to learn how to pray. And so we'll give you just two practical applications in your prayer life. For private prayer, if you're not accustomed to praying much in private, just start before you sleep. Just before you go to bed, make a habit of thanking God for the provision he's given you that day. Easy place to start. For public prayer, which is scary for a lot of people. You know, the easiest place to to start is just at your dinner table with your own family. Just make a habit of praying out loud together 
as a family and thank God for the food on the table if you can't think of anything else. But develop a life of prayer. Ask God to give you a longing to pray and just start doing it. Right? You've, we've all heard the example of how a marriage where two people never communicate to each other, it can't work. And we hear that illustrated as a way to say if you're not ever communicating with God, how do you expect that relationship to remain strong? It's very true. If you never pray to God, how strong do you really think that relationship is? Number five, make church a priority in your life. The church is the bride of Christ, right? We get bogged down sometimes fighting and bickering over semantics, whether we mean a group of people as the church or a building. Well, Scripture uses it both ways. We're talking about the people. The church is the bride of Christ, right? The church is who Christ is returning for. It's who Christ died for, you and I. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys are very faithful. But many people just fit the church into their worldly life. Right When in reality, we should desire to arrange our life around the church. This is where you're going to spend all of eternity with the church. If you don't like the church now, you're not going to like heaven. Number six, the last one. Make sure you grow in spiritual maturity. You might take three steps forward and two steps back. It's, it's okay. We're all going to fall. But make sure you grow in spiritual maturity. There comes a stage where every believer should move from what Paul says is the milk of the word to the meat of the word. You do that by studying your Bible. You do that by learning to pray. You do that by reading books by biblical and faithful authors, by memorizing scripture, by serving one another. All those little things God uses, the Holy Spirit uses to grow us in maturity. Without these things, we can hardly do what Jude is calling us to do to contend for the faith. I mean, all over the country, and we've read these statistics, we have people who have been in the church for 12, 15, 20 years who don't even know the basics of the Christian faith. They can't even tell you what the Great Commission is. You remember that statistic, the Barna Study Group? Over 50%, I don't remember what the number was exactly, of regular church-going professing Christians had no clue what the Great Commission was. So we need to grow in spiritual maturity. It's impossible to love a Christ truly that you don't know. It's fine if you're a new believer, but after a while we should show signs of maturing. So these are just a few ways that practically we can position ourselves to be faithful to what Jude calls us to, to contend for the faith. These things help guard us against false teachers. Like I came out of the false church. It all sounded good, it all felt good, and almost all of it was garbage and antithetical to what Scripture teaches. And so developing spiritual maturity helps guard us and do the very thing Jude wants us to do. And so Jude wants us to be encouraged by the fact that the condition of the world around us and even apostasy in the church was already foretold. We shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't cause us to 
walk out on the faith because a pastor falls or because your favorite church member falls. Certainly it should cause us to grieve, but none of us should be caught off guard. Jude says, remember. Remember and be encouraged because all of this was told to you. Let's pray.